Good morning, Life Church! What's up? My name is Alex. I'm on staff here at Life Church Livonia. I'm one of the pastors here. If we have not met, I would love to meet you. So leave a comment in the comment section for me. Uh, today, thanks for joining us in between series. If you've been with us this last week, we just finished our series called The Second Act on the Book of Nehemiah. And this week, um, we're doing a standalone on reconciling relationships. Because, hey, this past week was Valentine's Day. And I'm betting that half of us had a pretty good day. And half of us, let's just say that Valentine's can be a day, a prime time for some gaps to form. Gaps between reality and expectations. <laughs> Those gaps cause some conflicts. I know when my wife and I got married, Amber and I, I did nothing for her our first Valentine's Day because I was like, girl, you got a Valentine's life. I get you flowers all the time. And the girls out there already know that was not going to cut it. So, you know, things happen on Valentine's Day. Conflict happens on Valentine's Day. We've all been there. I mean, like, take this guy, for example. He wrote this in a tweet. He says, I take this girl out on our first date, and after dinner, she accidentally texted me instead of her friends saying how bad the date was going and how she wished it would be over soon. The rest of the car ride was silent and awkward. <laughs> or take this girl for example. So the guy picks me up on Valentine's Day to take me out for dinner. I'm all dressed up because I think we're going somewhere nice. He pulls into Wendy's and before he gets out of the car, he says, hey, could you only order from the dollar menu? Thanks. Happy Valentine's Day. <laughs> but we don't, we don't just have conflicts in our relationships on Valentine's Day. We don't just have conflicts in our relationships when we're dating. We have conflicts in all kinds of relationships. How many of you have gotten into trouble with a friend, family member, even coworker because there were some leftovers in the fridge and you thought they were free game? <laughs> and a couple hours later, someone opens the fridge and goes, where'd my pizza go? Who ate my pizza? <laughs> Need I say more? Or, ooh, this is a good one. How many of you have gotten into a conflict because you, got, you were watching a show with somebody, they fell asleep, you finished the season finale without them, <laughs> and the next day they go, we gotta finish our show, and you go, yeah, we do, don't we? <laughs> not to mention the conflicts that come up when we're just, you know, about, not on the same page about doing household chores like laundry or dishes. Or, you know, the conflicts that come up when your partner's really arguing with you. Hey, you really do need to go to the doctor for that thing you swear a little bit of sleep and ibuprofen is going to heal. <laughs> or This is one Amber and I have gotten into conflict with all the time. My car would be, my old car would be like teetering on E and she would have anxiety driving in the van. And I would say, listen, I know my car. I know when it's really empty. We still have 30 miles. <laughs> Whatever it is, all of us experience conflict in our relationships. Conflict is a normal, natural part of all relationships. Valentine's Day or not, dating or not, we have conflict in our friendships. We have conflict in our marriages, our dating relationships, with our kids, with our parents, with our coworkers, with our siblings, with our bosses. Conflict is just an inevitable reality of doing community together. And most of the time, that conflict's manageable, right? If handled well, it makes the relationship stronger. Uh, but sometimes it's unmanageable. Sometimes it gets so intense uh, or, or there's so much built up over time 
the relationship itself can't sustain the conflict. Even if we can learn how to kind of function around each other, sometimes the relationship never heals. Now, none of us need to be taught how to break relationships, but all of us need help learning how to heal them. Now, uh, for those of us who have had relationships end or never really heal uh, over a really intense conflict, I just know it can be a great source of shame for us. Um, but I want you to know that even Jesus, the sinless Son of God, had conflict and relational fallout in his closest friendships. Peter was one of Jesus' closest friends, and despite living life together for three years, Peter betrays Jesus in a moment where Jesus needs him the most. It creates major fallout in their relationship and breaks their friendship. My hope today is to look at how Jesus and Peter's relationship was broken and how it was reconciled in order to help us learn how to be greater reconcilers in our own relationships. So the question I want to answer today is how do Jesus and Peter teach us to reconcile relationships? Before we begin, I just want to give one disclaimer here at the front. I get that this is a really sensitive and nuanced issue. Uh, there have been many, many deeply difficult problems in relationships that generalizations are insufficient to solve. And when it comes to broken relationships, some are repairable. Some would need a miracle to repair, and, and God can do miracles. And some are irreparable, because one party is either unwilling or even deceased. So the Bible commands Christians be people of forgiveness, um, but reconciliation isn't always an option. And I just want to recognize that up front. And while each situation on the other end of that, while each situation is unique and there are things that, again, generalizations don't cover, the Bible does give us helpful and practical guidance uh, on how to reconcile our relationships that we can all learn from regardless of our situation. And our identity as Christians is an identity that is based in our reconciliation to God. We are, at our core, a reconciled people. And Scripture gives us principles that lead us to reconcile with others, and we should look to do that whenever possible. So, that being said, I want to begin just by talking a little bit about Jesus and Peter and their relationship. Let me start with Peter. Every Jewish boy dreamed that they would do well in their primary school called Yeshiva. And that at the end of their school time, as they sought to memorize the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, that a rabbi would look on them and say to them, come follow me. That was every Jewish boy's dream. But that dream didn't happen for Peter. He didn't do well enough in school for any rabbi to take an interest in him. So, after primary school, he enters the workforce and he tries to make a living for his family in the family business as a fisherman. He was a blue-collar guy, you know, a man who worked hard under the sun to provide for his family, for his wife. And Peter seemed content with that life. Until one day, his brother Andrew comes up to Peter and tells Peter that he has met the Messiah 
the person the Jews had been hoping for, praying for, prophesying about for hundreds of years, the man who would set God's people free, free from displacement and foreign occupation, free from every earthly kingdom, free from fear. You know, I, I doubt Peter believed his brother Andrew at first. I mean, come on, would you? If your sibling came up to you to tell you that they had just met the hope of the entire world, the hope of the, the Hebrew people who had been prophesied about for hundreds of years and nearly written off as a legend or a myth, I mean, come on, I would roll my eyes at my brother, punch him in the shoulder and say, could you please help me? Okay, we got a lot of work to do. Grab a net. Come on, we got a, got a job, man. But Peter, maybe against his better judgment, goes off with Andrew to meet Jesus. And man, that changed everything. Jesus looked at Peter and said, come, follow me. And at that moment, Peter left everything. Peter didn't know much at this point, but he knew he wanted to follow Jesus. So Peter follows Jesus at first as this rabbi, a teacher, a mentor. But as time went on, Jesus tells the whole group of disciples, they're not just his servants. They're not just his students. They're his friends. And Jesus tells them that he loves them enough to lay down his life for his friends. And I'm sure that moment was deeply profound for Peter. And relationally rich as Jesus invited Peter into this deeper level, this greater depth of intimacy. As Jesus' ministry continued, there were a number of private and personal moments that not all 12 disciples got to see. But Peter did. When Jesus was transfigured, reuniting with heaven for the first time since his life on earth, Peter was there. When Jesus was terrified of the weight of the cross, grieving and sweating blood in anguish, Peter was there. When Jesus was unjustly tried and brought before the Sanhedrin, Peter was there. Over the course of three years, Peter became one of Jesus' closest friends. And Peter became increasingly vocal about his dedication to Jesus, saying things like, even if I fall away on account of you, or even if I'll fall away on account of you, I never will. Truly, I tell you, Jesus answered, this very night, before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. But Peter declared, even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you. And all the other disciples said the same. Those are big claims. But when they got put to the test, when Peter had to live those out in his love for Jesus, Scripture tells us this. It says, Then seizing him, Jesus, they led him away and took him into the house of the high priest. And Peter followed at a distance. And when some there had kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard and sat down together, Peter sat down with them. A servant girl saw him seated there in the firelight, and she looked closely at him and said, This man was with him. But he denied it. Woman, <laughs> I don't know Jesus. I don't know him. A little later, someone else saw him and said, No, you also are one of them. And Peter says, Man, I'm not. And about an hour later, another asserted, Come Certainly, this fellow was with him, for he is a Galilean. I mean, just like in America, how people have different accents in different regions. In ancient Israel, people had different accents in different regions. And there was a Galilean accent that Peter had. And this guy goes, come on, man, you got the accent. You had to be with Jesus. And Peter replies, man, I don't know what you're talking about. 
And just as he was speaking, the rooster crowed. Mm. The Lord turned and looked straight at Peter. And then Peter remembered the word the Lord had spoken to him. Before the rooster crows today, you will disown me three times. And he went outside and wept bitterly. This is an easy passage to just kind of like let go in one year and out the other if you've been around church for a while. But I want you to pause in this moment. In this moment, Peter's friendship with Jesus was broken. In this moment, their relationship dissolved. Jesus is being wrongfully accused, illegally tried in the middle of the night, not business hours, and sentenced to a death he does not deserve. And when he needs his friends the most, Peter publicly and loudly disowns him. And that broke their relationship. When Jesus is resurrected, he sends an angel to tell the women who come to the empty tomb uh, something about the resurrection. And, And the angel tells them this. Don't be alarmed, he said. You're looking for Jesus the Nazarene who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go tell his disciples and Peter. He is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. Did you catch that? It said the disciples and Peter. Peter's not included amongst the disciples anymore. At this point, there's been no conversation between Peter and Jesus. Uh, There's been no healing. There's been no reconciliation. Peter uh, isn't the disciple anymore. And he's not a friend either. He's just Peter. Man, that's uh, really, really rough for Peter. But it's kind of amazing for us. You know, isn't it amazing to know that the perfect, sinless Son of God struggled with broken relationships? I think this addresses a number of misconceptions that I know I have about broken relationships and conflict uh, that I think are so freeing for us. Firstly, it destroys the idea that if I am perfect my relationships will be perfect. Jesus was perfect. And in the same evening, he lost two of his closest friends, Peter and Judas, both who betrayed him. Peter betrayed him uh, out of fear of people's approval. Judas betrayed him for money, but both have left Jesus. It also ruins the idea that if my friend was perfect, if the other person was perfect, then we'd have no relationship issues. Peter was best friends with the perfect sinless son of God. He literally had the perfect friend. But Jesus' perfectness wasn't enough to keep their relationship from having problems or from ultimately dissolving. Relationships are always work. Always. And navigating conflict is always a part of them, even if you're perfect. But none of us are perfect. Jesus and Peter's relationship, however, it doesn't stay broken. As we just read, Jesus sends an angel to invite the disciples and Peter to meet him in Galilee. And Jesus asks Peter to come so they can have a conversation. Jesus has them catch some fish, they eat together, and then the Bible says this. When they had finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, 
Do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said. You know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my lambs. Again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He answered, yes, Lord. You know that I love you. Jesus said, take care of my sheep. The third time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him the third time, do you love me? And he said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my sheep. And then he said to him, come follow me. So the question here is how is Jesus teaching us to reconcile here? How is Jesus showing us how to reconcile here? Well, I think there are three things that this broken relationship between Jesus and Peter show me uh, that I'm applying to my life. But I I think there's a disclaimer we have to um, absorb and understand before we can jump into them. The disclaimer is simply this. We will never have as much control over anybody else as we have over ourselves. Reconciliation is something that takes two people who are willing to forgive, willing to grow, willing to make things right. And we will never, ever, ever be able to control whether someone else is willing to do those things or not. But we will always be able to control whether we are willing to do those things or not. So as we see Jesus and Peter model this path to reconciliation, we can only apply these things to ourselves. We cannot apply them on behalf of another person. We cannot do the necessary work on someone else's behalf to prepare them for reconciliation, but we can always do the necessary work to prepare our own hearts to be reconcilable. With that being said, I think there's three things that Jesus and Peter teach us here. And the first one we learn from Peter. And what we learn from Peter is to weep over our sin. Because, you know, I know you guys don't do this, but, you know, when I'm wronged, I like to picture myself as the Jesus in the situation. You know, the perfect, sinless, sacrificial lamb who's been offered up so unfairly, who's done nothing wrong, that nobody understands. (laughs) Now, I know no one else here gets that kind of attitude. That's my sin. I'm self-righteous. But uh, it's important to remember That in this scenario, as we're watching Jesus and Peter reconcile their relationship, it's so important to remember, none of us are Jesus in this scenario. We are all Peter. We are all broken. And that brokenness we see in the world and in our relationships is a mirror and extension of the brokenness in our own hearts. Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So none of us are Jesus. We are all Peter. And so if I'm going to be a reconciling person, uh, then I need to weep over my sin. And, you know, I, I remember my brother Dylan and I used to fight a ton as kids. And I remember my grandma Wallace, my mom's mom, sitting me down and Dylan down after one fight at her house. And I was trying to explain why I was the Jesus in the situation, you know, why I'm the one that's been so wrong. (laughs) 
and she just shut me up and said, Alex, it takes two people to start a fight and it will always take two people to finish one. And I went, whoa, okay. And my grandma was right. Whether I need to own 5%, 10%, or 95% of an issue, I will always have a part to own. There is always something I can learn and grow from, and I am sinful. There is always something I can own in that. There's a story of a guy named St. John the Short. He was a monk. And one day he's preaching in his monastery with his fellow monks. And a jealous rival monk stands up and interrupts John in the sermon. And he goes, John, your cup is full of poison. Talking about John's sinfulness and brokenness. And John replies to his fellow monk, yes, it is. And you say that only seeing the outside of my cup. I wonder what you would say if you saw the inside too. And then John just goes back to preaching. <laughs> I mean, honestly, man, I aspire to this, right? I aspire to this. I aspire to that kind of humility that can honestly see my sin clearly without haze. And I aspire to the kind of intimacy with God that can see that sin non-defensively so that I truly, deeply know my own brokenness and at the same level, truly, deeply know God's saving grace to say with no shame or fear, you are so right. I am sinful and it is way worse than you think. And then to continue to live my day in humble, repented rootedness in the love of God who died on the cross for that very sin in me. I aspire to that. And I think that begins with this ability to weep over our own sin, to see it for what it is and not try to defend it or justify it or minimize it, but to go, man, you're right. I screwed up and I have to own that. Will you forgive me? The second thing we see here from, uh, in, in Jesus and Peter's relationship, it's not from Peter this time, it's from Jesus. <clears throat> Did you notice that when Jesus sends the angel to the tomb, he tells the angel to invite the disciples and Peter to meet him in Galilee? Jesus didn't have to do that. Peter made his choice. Jesus did not have to reach back out. It would have been justice for Jesus to not reach back out. Peter did wrong. But Jesus did reach back out. And Jesus offered an opportunity for reconciliation. Jesus was the victim in this situation. He could have, in total justification, total justice, just let Peter go, let him walk away, and never talk to him again. But Jesus doesn't do that. You see, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus talks about loving our enemies and not hating our enemies. And that word for hate means to write them off as if they don't exist. They're dead to me now. And Jesus says, no, 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 kingdom people don't do that. Kingdom people don't live that way. Kingdom people remain open to their enemies in love. And Jesus also in that same sermon talks about the importance of forgiveness and the severity with which God takes forgiveness. He says, man, God will forgive you your sins, but if you don't forgive other people their sins, after all the forgiveness you've received, God will not forgive you for that. 
I mean, it's very intense. It's very severe. And we see Jesus not just talking that talk, but in his closest relationships, he is walking that walk. Jesus forgave Peter. And then Jesus embodied the very cross he just conquered, offering Peter reconciliation. And if we are going to be reconciling people, we have to prepare our own hearts to offer reconciliation to other people instead of just hoping that time and distance will kind of sort it out. The last thing that Jesus and Peter do happens on this beach in Galilee. One of the things that struck me about that exchange was, does Jesus even bring up Peter's sin in that conversation? When they finally get back together and they're reconciling and addressing the elephant in the room and addressing the break in their relationship, does Jesus even mention Peter's sin? No, he doesn't. Peter's already wept over his sin, and Jesus knows that. And Jesus isn't here to beat Peter over the head with his sins. So what does he do instead? Jesus doesn't just use this reconciliation conversation to call Peter out for his sin. Instead, he uses it to call Peter up to his values. To call Peter up to his values. You see, three times Peter denies Jesus. And then three times Jesus asks Peter to reaffirm the value of his love and commitment to Jesus. And then Jesus gives Peter an action step that helps Peter tangibly connect that value to a behavior in the world, which was the breakdown the first time. Peter declared his love super strongly for Jesus last time too, but his behavior didn't match that value. And Jesus is calling Peter back to his values and asking him to raise his behavior up to his values. We'll talk about this a little bit more and tell me more, but Peter doesn't actually rise to those values in this conversation. You see, Jesus asked Peter if he loves him. And there's four Greek words for love. C.S. Lewis wrote a great book on it. You might want to check it out, The Four Loves. But Jesus asked Peter if he agapao loves him. And that agape, agapao love, it's this wholehearted, charitable, self-giving commitment. It's how God loves us. Jesus asked Peter, Peter, do you agapao me? And Peter responds, Lord, you know I phileo you. And phileo is a different word for love. It means the love between two close friends. It's, it, it wasn't necessarily, I don't think Peter was trying to show Jesus this lesser love. Um, but Because in ancient times, the love for a friend was often dearer than a romantic relationship. You know, there were a lot of sexual ways to worship other gods in this culture at the time. And so there were a lot of sexual relationships that happened. Um, that this came and went. They were transient. But this love for a friend was enduring and was this family you chose to do life with. And um, Peter offers that to Jesus and says, Lord, you know I love you like my closest friend. But that's not what Jesus asked. Nor is it what Jesus is trying to call Peter up to. But Jesus bears with Peter in this. And there's a lot of different interpretations on what this exchange means and what these, these different loves mean. And I could be wrong about this, but this is my reading of the text. I think that Jesus didn't interpret this as an unwillingness on Peter's part to love Jesus in this higher level. But I, I think that Jesus just saw this as a cap on Peter's understanding of an ability to reciprocate love at the level that Jesus was asking. And so 
Jesus asked him, Peter, to show this love through some tangible actions. And though G Peter doesn't reciprocate Jesus' level of love, nor does he immediately arise to this value, Jesus bears with that and accepts Peter where he's at. And then once again asks him to follow me. Their relationship isn't perfect. But it is mended. And it's mended enough for them to walk forward together. And over time, one of the interesting things I saw in the scriptures is Jesus says, Peter, do you agapow me? And Peter says, I phileo you. And in the books of First and Second Peter, we now see Peter all these years later, after the resurrection, calling the Christians he's writing to up to this agapow love of God. Peter did not rise to the values in that conversation, but he got there. And he got there with Jesus' patience with him. Jesus didn't just call Peter out for his sins, but up to his values. In this relationship, we see Jesus truly and deeply living this gospel of forgiveness that reconciles the world to God in Christ. When we seek reconciliation in our relationships, we live out the gospel. We embody it in a unique and special way. And now again, we can't force anyone else to get to a place where they are able to be reconciled. But we can do the work ourselves to get to that place. Because at the end of our lives, none of us will have to own anybody else's decisions, but all of us will have to own our own. 2 Corinthians 5.10 says this, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each of us may receive what is due in, for the things done in the body, whether good or bad. So where are you at this morning? As we wrap up here, is there a conflict in your life in which you have yet to weep over your own sin? To own what you've done wrong? Maybe you need to move towards forgiveness in a relationship and let go of the bitterness. Forgiving them just as God has forgiven you. Maybe you need to offer an opportunity for reconciliation and stop running from it, hoping that it'll just figure itself out in time. Maybe you need to not just call people out for their sins, but call them up to their values. And in order to do this, I just want to add a quick caveat. In order to call people up to a higher value, we have to clarify our values in the conflict. And um, we have to be able to sort through, okay, which, what parts of this conflict are really my issues, my past, my trauma, my stuff that I'm bringing? I like to say it all the time, and Kate and Bettina will probably roll their eyes hearing me say this, but uh, an explosion happens when you got gunpowder and fire. So, hey, yeah, they were playing with fire and that's on them, but I had gunpowder in my own soul. And the only reason there was an explosion is because I didn't take it out. That's on me. And um, there's a, a tool we have uh, through EHS called the Ladder of Integrity. This is a super helpful list of questions that I use every time I go into a conflict that has the potential to get really highly emotional and charged. I go through this Ladder of Integrity to help myself just whew, center and clarify my own values and separate out, okay, this is really my stuff to deal with and this is the stuff that I need to talk about in this conversation. So maybe you're in a place where you want to call people up to a higher value, but you're not sure what to do with that. And that's a really helpful tool I just cannot recommend highly enough. And lastly, you might be sitting here today having heard about Jesus, having come to church, 
but you know that God is not the God of your life. And just like Peter, your relationship with God is broken. And it needs to be fixed. It's not other people you need to reconcile with, it's God. Because we can only have that inner strength to reconcile deeply with other people if we're first reconciled to God. And if that's you today, if you don't know Jesus and that saving friendship, that salvific friendship with Christ, I want you to know Jesus is offering you that opportunity for reconciliation today. He died on the cross for all of your sins and my sins. And he is calling you up to a new kind of life. Jesus is calling you out of a life that's just minimizing depression or hustling until I feel successful or secure or chasing the things that make me feel happy and never feeling happy long term. He's calling you into a life of deep meaning and eternal purpose. A life of profound loving community and a life of love and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. I want that life for you. And if you want that life, I invite you now to offer your sins to Jesus and to ask him to take it and become Lord of your life. Wherever you're at this morning, I just want to invite you now to pray with me. So Lord, I come before you and I just recognize, Lord, that I have sinned and I have fallen short of your perfect standard for relationships and life. God, I ask you to forgive me. And I ask you to give me the strength and guidance to forgive other people. To forgive my family for old wounds. To forgive my friends for their betrayals. To forgive my spouse or my partner for forgetting about me, for not hearing me, for not seeing me, for not listening to me. For forgiving my kids for their cruelty and dismissiveness of me. For forgiving my boss or co-workers for their meanness, for their control. Father, I pray that you would do a miracle in my heart to offer reconciliation to them. And Father, I just ask now that you would give me the gift of your Holy Spirit. I give myself to you. Lord, I ask that you take my sin so that I might receive your forgiveness and receive eternal life in Jesus and life in the full now. Lord, I just ask these things and I pray that you would do them by your power in the name of Jesus. Amen. If you just prayed with me just now to be reconciled to God, to receive forgiveness, to follow Jesus, I want you to fill out our digital connection card or comment in the comment section so we can follow up with you because you have just said yes to a new kind of life. And we are here as your community to help you walk it. We hope to see you next week as we start our new series, The Seven Realities of Experiencing God. And God bless you.